We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, welcome to Behind the Headlines on Salt Radio Network. This week, we are going to be talking about all the things that have happened last week. No way. So it's last a view week. to describing so, so the what name will happen next week. With the name of this show should be Last Week Tonight. <laughs> LWT. Well, not just last week. Obviously, we may go into we may go further back in time, uh, as uh, is often required. To I was actually things that are happening today. I was trying to think of you know little introductory lines we could we could use, like what? And, you know, you've got to have like a standard info. Yeah, and you prepared one. Go for it. It's Sunday. This is behind the headlines where we look back at the week that was and the world gone mad. That sounds good to me. All right. We look back at the week that was and what might be in the world circling down the drain. <laughs> circling the, the toilet. <laughs> so what happened last week? Uh, I don't know. I wasn't Peace. Peace. Yes. Peace over the world. Peace yeah. over Europe. Peace over uh, Ukraine. Yeah. This last week, peace Wonder broke out everywhere. News. So I don't know why people are listening to the show tonight because there's nothing really to say. It's all peace broke out. It's, it's all, all good. It's all bunny rabbits and unicorns. You can all go. <laughs> you can all go home now. I'll call them for salt. Nothing to see here. Uh, well, that's not quite true. There's wars and rumors of wars and peace and ceasefires and rumors of peace and ceasefires. But uh, well, I suppose the Kiev uh, ceasefire is well. It's almost uh, it's almost 24 hours old at this point. Um, and did they cease firing? Well, a little bit. Partly, they did. At least uh, the news is the idea of holding ceasefire that you cease firing, not mm-hmm. a little bit. Well, you know, you but can't expect that kind of thing. There, <laughs> just there is a, a technical point. Maybe you guys have some idea about it because separatists made a statement a few hours ago saying Debat Sevo. You know Debat Sevo? This uh-huh. enclave, this railway hubs, yeah. hub where thousands of Kiev troops are surrounded, and they say here. We keep on fighting to some extent because it is not along the demarcation line. It is within our own territory. And uh, apparently the ceasefire says that uh, there will be demarcation line and we move all our heavy artillery mm-hmm. 70 to 100 kilometers from this line. Exactly. So, I mean, that covers, that line. Co- it covers the cauldron. The cauldron falls within the demarcation line. Ah, yeah? Mm-hmm. Is it, uh, of it. Oh, yeah? I think the point of it was that, but that's a sticky sticky issue because, you know, the the rebels have um, Crane and um, it's a fairly strong hand uh, that they have there and um, just letting those guys out to possibly come back another day and kill some more civilians in Eastern Ukraine um, might not be um, appetizing yeah. uh, a, lot of, a lot of people, you know. It's a tricky move because uh, if you're in the shoes of those uh, 
uh, Eastern Ukrainian uh, troops, or the, as they're called, rebels. You would have some doubts before dropping your hold on uh, this uh, strategic point, mm -hmm. because uh, there's been how many ceasefires before? The one in April, the one in September, and both were not respected. So what, you have this stronghold, you're about to capture 7,000 uh, uh, troops with a lot of equipment. Then there's this fire, you stop fighting, you release the stronghold, the Ukrainian troops can go back to their HQ, and uh, what, in, few, uh, in a few days, start uh, war start again, fight start I, again. And, uh, I think the Russians take a broader look at this. Ukraine is done, it's finished, it's collapsing. It might collapse only in 25 years, but it's finished. It's not going to work. The Russians take a long-term view of this. They don't care if they're going to lose some territory. <laughs> Whatever. They're, like the, someone, they projected this onto Putin, but actually it's a true sentiment. and has some basis in reality. Russia could take Kiev and the whole of Ukraine in, in a week. You know, no problem. So there's no issue for them if they lose territory in quotes. Because they don't really... Now, for the actual locals, Correct. in terms of their homeland, yeah. the Donbass peoples... Yeah, it's a bad deal, for sure. And they are having to make a pretty serious sacrifice. But I think um, I think Moscow is exerting some pretty serious control over them. I mean, the last time this happened, they booted out their leading commander, Strzokov, because he was unreliable. Um, so you think it's Russia that controls the moves? Yeah, I mean, the disrespect, the, the disrespect the West is correct. Okay. And it pisses them off because they control them so well. No. But, uh, yes, they do control Moscow. Well, they control them because there wouldn't be any uprising. It's certainly not one going on as long without the help of... Yeah, the rebels uh, couldn't Russia. survive if they had an enemy at their back, too. So Yeah. They but need. but um, <clears throat> I was wondering if it was a, a partial support, you know? Maybe logistics, maybe some some backing with some autonomy to the rebel forces. No, well, not really. Not really. Because, I mean, if you think about it... Um, Prior to the Maidan coup orchestrated by, uh, basically by the State Department uh, last year, uh, the Ukrainian military was in, in very good shape. It was basically Soviet-era military uh, equipment and very, I mean, they, they had not actually funded, they hadn't been funding the military in Ukraine, the government hadn't been funding it, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't really a proper military to speak of and all of their equipment was aging and lost and stuff. So you had a certain portion of that. Uh, equipment and personnel, obviously, in, in eastern Ukraine. But certainly, uh, based on the assessments that have been done long before and after in the past year, uh, there's no way that the equipment and the people that, that were in eastern Ukraine would have been anywhere near enough to uh, sustain yeah. a campaign going on this long. So it's by definition. And also the fact that uh, you have a relatively small amount of uh, rebels in eastern Ukraine fighting against a much larger force from Kiev and other parts of Ukraine with supposedly the same weapons. Uh, so how have the rebels been able to hold out so long, not only hold out but expand their territory and, and inflict such serious defeats sure. on, a, on a stronger force? So, I mean, by definition, you have to assume that they have better equipment, uh, better training. Right from the beginning. Uh, yeah, I mean, they have military, uh, they have weapons, etc., that are modern Russian weapons against Soviet-era weapons. And the other thing is, is that the weapons that they the weapons that the Soviets or the Kiev forces are using are Soviet weapons, the Russian weapons. The Russians know them inside out, you know. I mean, oh, they yeah, they sure. made them, right? They know exactly what they have. They know uh, what capabilities they have. And 
the Eastern Ukrainian rebels have been, have been given weapons and training and have advisors uh, from Russia with modern Russian weapons. You know, so it's, I mean, it's really kind of, it's really a, uh, on an unequal fight, but in the opposite way, as you'd expect, you'd think that a small group of people in Eastern Ukraine would be the underdog and would be being beaten down, but they're actually in the ascendant or in the in a superior position to the rest of Kiev because uh, because because of this, you know. And the other interesting thing that that suggests then is that all of that weaponry, etc., the rebels have been using since they started fighting was all in uh, Eastern Ukraine before. Uh, yeah. Probably before even the coup, and I would I would suggest that it was there before the coup, um, in February last year, almost a year ago, uh, which means that the Russians expected this to happen. Not only did they expect and see uh, the coup coming, the kind of NATO slash U.S. State Department coup coming, but they also saw they also had a plan. Obviously, they had a very very definite plan to take Crimea because they took it within a few days. That was well planned in advance, but also to uh, support the people in eastern Ukraine in advance. So yeah. if you think about it, it seems to me that the, that the Russian government had them um, foresaw this maybe even a few years in advance. And then that brings up the possibility that they may even have... I mean, I don't think they baited them into it, obviously, because that's what the U.S. government or U.S. State Department um uh, and the various NGOs, etc. That's what they do. What, what happened in, last, in Ukraine last year was a kind of color revolution in the, in the line of uh, several of them that have happened over the past 10 years in different places that were inspired by the, by the West. So I don't think um, they were baited into it. It's something that they, they wanted to do and they planned to do, but they just didn't expect that Russia to be really stupid because when you're in that position of having you know this policy of going around the world, destabilizing countries, overthrowing governments, installing the government, and you do it repeatedly over a long period of time. And we can even go back into the uh, Soviet era. You know, we can go back 30, 40, 50 years uh, and understand that the Russians have been observing the U.S. and the way they do this for maybe half a century. Mm-hmm. So the idea that they wouldn't know the way it was going to play out uh, because they studied them meticulously. And that put them in a very... Uh, um, advantageous position because they not only could, could they predict almost exactly what they would do, but that allowed them to develop counter countermeasures. And apparently, you know, it seems that the West were outsmarted because they they didn't expect the Russians to be quite uh, so uh, ready yeah. to put in a countermeasure. So the motivation of uh, Lugansk and uh, Eastern Ukraine in general, cannot be the, the only reason explaining the victories no. uh, made by the, the rebels. Not, no, I mean, they obviously have the military equipment. Yeah. Well, there, there are local factors that that fit well. Like, they would be the most, I think it seems they're the most passionately pro-Russian to start with, and then to a lesser degree along the Ukraine south towards Odessa. But then, on the other hand, on the other side, you've got a slice of land called Transnistria. <laughs> Moldova. They're very, and then Moldovans themselves are pretty much pro-Russian. So, and from a morale point of view, the people who are fighting for, for what they see as their homeland, for independence, against theoretically uh, more, more powerful state power, uh, they generally tend to have more motivation um, yeah, to, 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 to fight. Because I mean, the troops that Kiev kind of throws at, at Eastern Ukraine, they aren't really that motivated. They, some of them are just ideological. 
nut jobs, you know, the average grunts who, do, who are too stupid to figure things out and have all sorts of silly reasons for going. But I think their clearest problem is that a lot of the troops that, that they're trying to send to Eastern Ukraine aren't, don't really have a lot of motivation. They have to be the real zealots, yeah. the real kind of fascists and, dare I say, Nazi types uh, that would go there to kill because the, they, they have a motivation because they're basically fascists. But the average rank and file Kiev kind of adult military age uh, man in, in Ukraine uh, probably thinks about the idea of being sent down there to, you know, in the context of them wanting their independence and it really only being a, a small section of Ukraine. And I mean, they probably have lots of reasons not to go, you know, and yeah. I think that's been one of the problems is they haven't had the manpower, you know, and why 68,000 troops theoretically out of, you know, 100,000 or more. Um, or potentially many more uh, military age men in Ukraine. That's why sixty eight thousand potentially being, you know, killed in one uh, in one fell swoop was, I think, was a real problem for them. It, 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 for me, it's an indication of just how tenuous their whole uh, military deployment and their ability to deploy troops is. is when 68,000, the, the capture or death of 68,000 all at once would be really serious problems for them. Yeah. And that, of their best people, the people who are actually willing to go type of thing. Yeah. Then what ones. do you do? Well, then you have to go and start dragging people out of their beds at night, sticking a, a the young uniform ones. on them and telling them ones. to go. And, you know, they'll get two steps down the road to, to your hands can turn around and run back the other way, you know. And uh, as far as motivation is concerned, it's all the worst that for those Ukrainian troops. It's waging a war within your own... Uh, yeah, there's a lot Borders. of that as well. It's that. Ukraine with, uh, versus Ukraine, so yeah, it's yeah, yeah. uh, not easy to, yeah. to jump the step. But now that you, you have described how Russia saw it coming, this color revolution orchestrated by the U.S. and prepared a resistance, basically, in Eastern Ukraine, uh, isn't it ironic to see uh, ambassador, U.S. ambassador in Ukraine, Payat, or Jen Patsky, evidence to prove that Russia has deployed heavy artillery in, a, in ex- Eastern Ukraine. For the, because it's not there. For the what? For the fifth time or something? Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. They, they keep... Well, it's not surprising. Making but fakes, but, but it's not there. So that, the, That's all they can do. Yeah, that's the support is not heavy artillery. It's, yeah, it's behind, guns. It's a, behind the actual war, or even over and above the actual war, with a propaganda war that's been going on for a long time, and that's what the U.S. has been fighting. They've been largely fighting uh, Russia on a, on a propaganda level yeah. and and so they continue with that you know i mean just because there might be a ceasefire and an agreement in in ukraine that may i mean i don't have much hope that it will last but assuming it does that's not going to stop the ongoing propaganda war in, by the west by the u.s in particular but also the eu yeah. against russia that's going to continue unabated because russia has is and has historically been their their enemy you know the enemy of the west because of where it is. We've talked about this before because of where Russia is, because of the size of Russia, because of the resources it has, because it's the, ma- the biggest country quite by far on the Eurasian landmass and would, all things being equal, uh, Russia would be the dominant uh, player in in Eurasia, <clears throat> which has the vast majority of people on the planet and the vast majority of resources on the planet. And if you have a, uh, the, everyone, all of those countries in Eurasia, including China, you know, Russia, India, the EU, and even down into the Middle East. I mean, it's game over for the U.S. The U.S. is just isolated. It's yeah. just, it just shrivels, shrivels up and blows away, type of thing, because it's completely, uh, it's out of the game, and it would have to come begging, basically, and, and it would have to be the un, the, the, the the kind of uh, the, the junior partner, if if that, to 
this Eurasian kind of block, you know, and uh, that's what these people who in the US who simply want power for its own sake and have enjoyed uh, global hegemony for so long, they can't, not even that they won't, but they can't give it up. You know, yeah. pathologically, they cannot conceive of just saying, okay, well, we had a good go at it, you know, well, about, you know, almost 100 years there, let's just call it quits, you know, we've been bested, time to back pack our bags up and go home and just, we you know, accept the, accept the reality, the facts on the ground, you know. No, they create reality and create yeah. facts on the ground and that's not so, you know, craziness. It's, I don't know. I, I have some anecdotal evidence for the, the long view of Russia. So there's apparently what was going around in the mid-1990s, uh, ex-KGB people, Russian intelligence and military people were reading a book, a novel, by their kind of equivalent to their Tom Clancy called The Third Imperium. And the book cover says a lot. It's basically the Russian Empire recreated. Most of, and no, it's not the Russian Empire per se, but it shows an, a Eurasian block from Dublin in the Atlantic to Vladivostok and Japan and back in the Pacific, cutting all the way down, including Iran, most of the Middle East, um, and the Levant, that includes Israel. And Ukraine. Anyway, it's a novel, it's a story, it's fictional. It's set in 2053, and it's about a guy reminiscing, he's looking back, and how it all started with the civil war in Ukraine. Wow. And then was it written in the 90s? Early 90s. And, and, yeah, the, and what is striking is actually this uh, Minsk agreement was signed between uh, Russia, Ukraine, Poroshenko. Uh, Merkel, Germany, and uh, Holland, France. But there was one guest missing, and one important guest is the U.S. And otherwise, uh, yeah, yeah. Ukraine is a, that's, is a U.S. That's, war. That's, so that's, how that's can a ceasefire be reliable? That's the point. Is this multi-level? Obviously, Russia and Putin care about the situation in Ukraine. I mean, they want to minimize suffering. I think that's that's very much in their goal. I mean, a ceasefire. Let's just stop killing each other. That, that's a very good reason to stop. So when people on the in the alternative who are like upset because they don't continue the war and just lift the West, you know, I mean that's just stupid. Mm. These guys are just trying to calm the situation now. That's one thing. The other part of this multi-level approach is that they're very much engaged in, like Joe said, the propaganda war. When you have a situation where Merkel and Hollande go secretly to Moscow, followed by a series of talks. And the difference between Minsk 2 talks and Minsk 1 is that there's no EU. Catherine Ashton wasn't there. There was no US representative yeah. there. And that is, you got to, people were saying, oh, but this, this is, this is a, there's one guy, Paul Roberts, is saying that uh, Russia sold out the rebels. You don't understand, dude. This is a major propaganda coup. Mm-hmm. When you have Russia and Europe dealing with moving into a, a uniform position, Mm-hmm. And the U.S. is nowhere in sight. Mm-hmm. What have we seen in the whole week since then? It's all these noises by the U.S. Oh, you, to they arm ha- them. They have well, to arm them, but well, that's also what, that ties yeah. into what we're saying about the weaponry and the imbalance in weaponry. The U.S. has sure. been brewing for quite a while and came to a head in the past week or two, where they're almost frenetic about uh, demanding that uh, that the U.S. send well, modern weaponry this, this preemptively because they were being destroyed, basically. Yeah. John Kerry arrived in Kiev on the day that the news broke mm-hmm. that they were going to have these news talks. So uh, there's this going. That's, a, that's where the timing of these things comes in. You know, it, there's a competition between Washington it, it, and Moscow for Europe. Yeah, exactly. And uh, my qu- 
what I'm wondering is uh, if the U.S. sticks to its policy, basically arming Ukraine and trying to to control Ukraine and put more pressure on Russia, isn't there a risk to drive isn't this uh, belligerent behavior could uh, trigger a a division between U.S. and Europe? Because well, the, Europe, Europe, the, the yeah. place where this leads to is another general European war. That's where the mechanicalness of its inevitable conclusion goes there. The only responsible one trying to ward off that possibility, that probable outcome, is Putin and the Russians. Well, but the... the, Merkel and Holland now want to ward that off as well because they realize the reality of it, which is that if they arm, if the US arms uh, Ukraine and the Russians don't back down, and Merkel apparently was convinced of the fact that the the idea, the threat of arming Ukraine with US weapons was not something that scared him, suggests that he was willing to to meet that challenge. And, um, you know, he may have been calling the bluff and he may have been playing on the fears of Merkel, etc., that basically this. You know, he may or may not have gone there, but this that this uh, could have ended up or will end up if you go there into a larger war in Ukraine, which is which as people are saying would spill over into well, EU nations right next door could possibly spill over into EU nations right next door, and that's the last thing. Uh, obviously, that scares Merkel, as you know, the the, the great lady of of the European Union and Holland, the, the major nation of the EU, but doesn't stay in the business of doing, which is having as much. It's far away. When and doubt have war. You know what I mean? Because it shakes things up and you yeah. set, you get rid of governments, things, you know, they, they figure they'd be able to control it and they don't lose much by it. Yeah. But the way you see it, so you could have a conflict with on one side the US and the other side almost the rest of the world. Yeah. Europe, Russia, I know, which has a big players, China. Mm. Well, I uh, think not necessarily the US on the one side, you would probably have Europe on the side of the US in a war against Russia. A kind of like an oh, so you don't see the Europe switching despite uh, Merkel's Holland move and uh, no, the to to go to war. No, unfortunately, I, I don't think so. But what they they don't want to see that happening because that means a war in European territory on on, on in Western mm-hmm. Europe, which means you know just Second World War over over again, you know, and uh, that's what they're scared of doing. So, but they can't really go there because how do you have a restrained in quotes conventional war when the ante can be off all the way to nukes? Well, you have it by proxy, basically. What you do, you know, you, you distance yourself from it by saying that we're not actually at war here, but you start funding all sorts of militias and, and different groups, you know. I mean, you know, the the, the members of the military of, of European countries would simply take off their regular clothes and put on just standard camo gear and say a militia, you know. Um, so you could keep a lid on it in that way, and that, might, that would work maybe both in the U.S.'s favor and Russia's favor, you know, because they... Um, uh, don't don't have to say that they're officially at war with each other, um, and don't have to use their free. Um, but I mean that's the way modern warfare in the past, you know, since Nagasaki kind of, and Hiroshima. Well, there's been no nukes, and there's yeah, been exactly. many proxy wars between uh, US yeah. and. Uh, I mean, US proxy war started. You know, maybe you could say the first proxy war, main real proxy war in this theater was uh, Afghanistan. You know, in the late uh, in, in the late seventies. So, um, and been, that's the way they've decided that that's the way they wage war from from then on. The U.S. wages war, you know, and other European countries and Russia. To a certain extent, Russia is a bit more upfront about it, you know, like in Chechnya and stuff. The major conflict they had, which was, you know, they sent in their their regular troops, but and of course the U.S. sent their regular troops to Iraq. But depending on the situation, they'll they'll use 
proxies, basically. No? I mentioned Ukraine's imminent collapse when they were thinking of the economy more than anything. And for months, they've been wrangling with um, the IMF in particular. The IMF was very sticky about giving it any more money, or at least what terms will come with it. But, oh, boy, did they cough up as mm. soon as the Minsk agreement was on the table. We've got the same, billion. the same day. It's like, oh, shit. Oh, we suddenly have $40 billion, but, yeah, $17.5 billion mm. to – it'll go straight to the creditors who owe Ukraine owe some money, too. Well, it'll come but with it's all big... with a view to not – to keeping Ukraine from defaulting and yeah. from essentially ending up in – Joint Russian EU management ending up backwards started, yeah, more or less, which is, which you know highlights the factlessness and pointlessness of all of this. Is that the most likely outcome of all of this is that it's going to go back to the way it was before Maidan last year, yeah, and nothing will be achieved. And I think even the Russians are aware of that and see that, and that's what they want. That's what they're willing to settle for because that's a natural order, and it uh, it wasn't quite so bad, and you know. Sure, you need to reform Ukrainian politics a little bit, you know, kick out about 90% of the politicians, but that's the same everywhere as well. Um, Ukraine economic state, that, uh, I gathered a few data, but that is uh, it's quite uh, scary, actually. Yeah. Ukraine basically is bankrupt. It's, it's ironic to see the European Union being so adamant to, uh, to straighten up Greece and... Uh, Meanwhile, not uh, the media are not really mentioning the, the very poor economic state of uh, of Ukraine. It, the economy contracted five percent in the second quarter, uh, 2014. Industrial output dropped 12 percent in July. Uh, debt is sky high. It's a yeah, it's a bankrupt con- country, much more than Greece actually. But they have to keep it alive because it's a strategic bond. There, there are a million internally displaced people in, in Ukraine proper. That's in regions not affected by all the shelling and the war. And another million have left for Russia. That's a UN figure, but I think it must be much higher because, I mean, uh, the Russians, <laughs> the Russians are doing something that, as the aggressive nation in quotes, they, they shouldn't be doing. I mean, if their first primary interest was to expand the borders to incorporate some of Ukraine, they would not be welcoming millions of refugees. They'd yeah, be saying, sure. stay there so we can hold the territory. But no, the first consideration is open borders. And they're allowing people, to, people are going in. They're doing what they did in the, during the Vietnam War in the U.S. People go to Canada to dodge the draft. That's happening on map uh, with Ukrainians flooding over to Russia. So it's beyond just like the raw economic data of it. The human scale is just social. There's an economic crisis and there's a social crisis. I went to visit the Brookings Institute website. You tend to get a an eye on what the think tank, what the maybe the policy the, pushers mean, in Washington. For, for the listeners, you could uh, give a what the background pol- of this uh, institute. I mean, what the policy makers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, well, the Brookings in I think I think they'll have some idea. Yeah, people know what it is more or less. It's a private slash public slash um, place where they turn out the ideas, which invariably get translated into policy in Washington. I mean, it's just one of many institutes. But so they are actually 
title of one by one of their top guys, Shapiro, an alternative to arming Ukraine. They're actually trying to can this guy anyway is trying to bring things back from the brink and saying, look, it's interesting because we say the reality creators is that they don't really deal with facts of life, but he is actually stressing that um, there's just no way around it, that we now need to enter into some kind of negotiation to revise the European security order on terms acceptable to Russia and the West. And he establishes, first of all, that Ukraine is just one battleground in a broader struggle between Russia and the West over regional order in Europe. Um, we can't trust Putin, fine, but we also can't just overthrow his regime. That's <laughs> very honest of you. Um, I'm, sure, like I'm sure they would love to, but uh, what I'm getting from it is an acknowledgement of reality and a kind of a really sad, sad effort to remind people why the U.S. is even necessary. But I'm reading, I'm going, you're kind of, you're kind of, excess baggage here in this bargain. What, what interest do you have in it at all? But there's nothing you can bring to this to either solve the problems or to you know we have, there's no need for anything American in Eastern sure, Europe. Sure. But on one side you have this institute advocating a de-escalation or diplomatic settlement and on the other side you have US officials who are pushing towards an escalation. Well, there's obviously conflicting. Uh, yeah, they are, but they aren't trends. Yeah, they send weapons, but they say, "Oh, it's a good peace deal." Yeah, Merkel did did good coming up with that, as if she did. That was Putin's thing through and through. But yeah, they got to like sort of uh, vicariously claim owner of ownership of it by 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 Merkel. Merkel and the EU. You say it was Putin because actually, in terms of means to the agreement. Is almost a replica of what uh, Putin proposed uh, weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, I mean, the, the solution. Hey, everybody. Looks like we uh, lost their call. Um, yeah, they just dropped out. So I'll play a little clip here until they get back online. Hang tight. Some people look at us flag swaying in the breeze at the White House and they say, that's America. Me, whenever I see a, an American flag hung in the window of a basement apartment by guys who have better things to do with their money than buy curtains, I say, that's America to me. In America, there are 51 states, or maybe it's 80 by now. Does England count? I'm not quite sure. The one thing I am sure of, though, is if I'm standing in a warehouse beside a time clock and a guy is punching in for his best friend who is too hungover to get out of bed, I'm standing in America, the makeover capital of the world, the place where every young man has to answer in his heart the question, what do you love more, your girlfriend or your car? And where that young man can buy a beat-up car for $300 and has to spend a thousand to insure it. Where else can even a paperboy auction the film rights to a book? A woman on an assembly line works out her overtime in her head to infinity. And at the exact same moment, her husband gets into a car accident because he's looking at a girl in a tube top. 
in America, where spelling doesn't count, people's pets do. Where else can a guy get a job riding a whale at Marineland, but in America? In America, a guy's girlfriend breaks up with him over the phone, so he gets a gun and kills the principal. Everyone is sad until they get the day off. Next week, uh, another guy, another gal, another we-can-still-be-friends phone call. Uh-oh. The assistant principal gets it. And everyone's sad because they don't get the day off. Okay. Because he's just the assistant. We had a little technical glitch there. Um, we hope you enjoyed that interlude. So, yeah, we were saying. Despite, uh, on one side, we have Shapiro and his Washington uh, think tank advocating the escalation and like some kind of uh, diplomatic agreement. And on the other side, you have uh, U.S. officials that are pushing towards a military escalation in Ukraine. Yeah, well, I'd just stress that what I was reading out there by this Brookings Institute guy is, is it's kind of... Um, he, he had a moment of clarity a little too late, let's say. Well, the, the, the horse has already, you know, left the barn. It's also only one paper and one sure. one policy paper, which is, you know, and there's compete, like I said, there's competing factions there, and who, who's going to win, win the day type thing, uh, given the U.S.'s track record. I mean, I don't think there's any chance that the that the doves, you right. know, the anti-war people will prevail. You know, it might come up now and again as an actual. I mean, that paper that you said it would be an analysis, an objective analysis of the situation, but it could be used. Hey, how do we fix this? Let's not go with your theories. Okay, you've done a good analysis of what the problem is and what we're facing. How do we deal with it? I.e., without, you know, let's leave off the table the idea of backing down or accepting defeat in any way whatsoever. How do we win this? You know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, the Brookings Institute, and there's, there's several other types of those institutes, that for a long time they have effectively been the overt shadow government, you know? There's maybe a covert shadow government, Open masters that pull the strings and all that kind of stuff. But there's actually a co- uh, an overt shadow government, which is people think it's the actual executive branch and Obama and all the advisors, but not really. It's these institutions that actually have actual scholars, you know? Because people often, uh, some people wonder, most people don't wonder how someone like Obama, <clears throat> with no schooling, no history in uh, many areas of, of a policy that he would have to supposedly implement and make decisions on. How is he make, going to make decisions on that? Okay, he said he has advisors, but even those advisors, are, he claims it would be within his government. None of those people have a have a, a track record uh, of uh, analysis of like uh, you know historical analysis or political analysis. They're not really uh, people who are smart enough to make those decisions. They don't know enough, so they look to these institutions that are that take in people who are coming out of uh, political science and history degrees, etc., from Yale and Harvard and stuff, and they come in. And these are people who have worked in government but have spent a lot of time, uh, you know, developing theories and, and researching uh, uh, essentially political science and history and psychology and a bunch of other things. And they clearly are the best people to uh, use to develop policy to come up with the best idea of what to do. And then they give it to the government. The government gives it to Congress. And Congress knows what to do. They all basically pass the law. And it supposedly comes from the, uh, the commander-in-chief, but it doesn't. It comes from these unelected uh, individuals who get together to decide what should be done. Um, and that's the way it's always been. I mean, it, it makes a mockery of the idea of, of democracy, obviously. And, you know, your elected representatives, you know, they may have some sway over the local kind of 
details of what happens in your particular state or whatever, you know, um, you know, budgetary uh, considerations, et cetera. But in terms of what the country actually does, <clears throat> people of Congress have very little say or sway whatsoever. It's all given to them to simply rubber stamp uh, by the president who gets it from these institutions. Uh, I mean, an example is this guy. You mentioned uh, Victoria Newland. Uh, or did you? You mentioned Payat, the ambassador, yeah, but she was the one who had the conversation yes. with Payat about Ukraine, about essentially installing the government in Ukraine last year. And she's married to Robert Kagan, who, is, who works in the Brookings Institute. So the policy that Victoria Newland uh, was implementing in terms of Ukraine was given to her by her husband, who works in the Brookings Institution. Him and his friends all put it together, and, and they went ahead and implemented it. You know, so it's, um, it's a bit sad. The whole thing, but these people are war- like like I was saying earlier on. They don't. They're not inclined. They're not going to submit. They're not uh, people in that position of. We uh, think they're in a position of complete dominance. Are not going to back down, especially if it's pathological, which a lot of them are. They're not going to back down from uh, complete control or what they think is complete control. So they just keep going and going and going and engage in increasingly crazy and self-defeatist. You know the end game of this kind of pathology is you start engaging in self-defeatist uh, policies, you know, where, where you don't accept, where you finally run into a wall and yeah. reality starts to intrude, and that should be the time for a normal person to say, okay, like I was saying, okay, look, we've, we've reached the limit, let's just change things here. They can't change things, they're on a course, and they keep pushing, and when they hit that wall of reality, which has been provided to, to them by Russia, um, they just uh, come up with increasingly crazy. At that point, they start developing crazy ideas you yeah. know, that that ultimately even aren't in their own interest. But that's the way all crazy people go, right? They And I guess the greater the chasm between reality and the wishful thinking of the strategical leader, the harder the fall. Mm-hmm. And today, the re- this chasm seems gigantic. When you hear some of those US officials statements, sometimes has no, again, I'm going back to this example, it has no ground, no no connection with reality. When you check those, uh, those statements about uh, alleged heavy artillery with tanks or mm-hmm. um, Russian presence on Ukraine, Ukrainian ground, and the way, uh, I have in mind this Jen Psaki, the, the mouthpiece of, uh, of Washington, when she's being asked by journalists about, okay, what about the evidence, what about the facts? I mean, basic question is, uh, Really, down to earth, and the way she answers this question, she seems totally oblivious of the very basic facts like reality, mm-hmm. evidence, facts. She lives in another world, in another universe. Yeah, yeah, She's yeah. Disconnected yeah. now. Well, there was also the guy who, that you mentioned earlier on. He was a, he's a, he's a senator, right? Ambassador. Ambassador. No, the senator who produced it. The, the images this week, the latest images. That was a guy in, 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 in he was a U.S. senator who right. had he had got the images from Kiev um, recently or in the past few months, and they had and he passed them to um, to a news outlet, I think, and the news outlet took them and ran with them, and that was why it was in the news just a few days ago. They're kind of grainy, blurry slotches on the ground, and they have the little symbol saying, you know, Russian military, uh, Russian artillery, artillery, etc. And it looks like uh, it's um, it's it's you know it's obviously the same as the previous ones. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. But it's really interesting because what you're saying there, but I mean they're lying. 
they're and they're blatantly lying. It's it's embarrassing at this point, but they don't seem to care. They don't seem to have any shame. They continue to produce these ridiculous lies and make believe stories yeah. and push it out to the media. And the thing is, that's what they've always done. But in a in a different context in the past, when they did that, they were in a position of controlling enough position to be able to actually put proper uh, something. You know, they had enough control where, for example, they would have been able to put some um, or artillery or tanks or something that looked like um, you know Russian tanks and have better images, and they would be able to convince yeah. people that, that was true, and that would have been would have become the historical truth. And that's happened so so much in the past, where what we think is historical truth was simply made up in the minds of these people. Uh, but they had the power and the ability to actually create that reality on the ground in some way and make it more convincing for the world than the world could then accept it. But now they're not in that position anymore. They're not so powerful anymore. And therefore what they're left with is simply the words, the allegations of, you know. Yeah. And this is <clears> where... It took 20 we... years for the babies in the incubator story to come out, you know. Yeah. Everybody believed yeah. it, you know. Yeah. They, had, they were able to get this girl, you know, Kuwaiti, ordinary Kuwaiti girl who worked in the hospital and they threw the babies out of the incubator and she ended up Eventually, it was revealed she was the daughter of uh, the Kuwaiti uh, president or, or, or Saudi ambassador. Yeah, it was a Saudi ambassador. Yeah, yeah. But she the Saudis. So she wasn't even Kuwaiti, but she said she was in Kuwait because you know this is what the Saddam's forces have done. And I don't. It took what well, it took like I don't know. It took years for that to come out. You know, everybody believed it and they went to war on it. You know, but um, and they're trying to do the same thing now. You know, with these allegations of Russian artillery, etc., that's all they can do. Well, and they what, would like to have war based on that. That's what they're pushing for: some kind of serious this, extra sanctions, up and to up to and including whatever way destroying Russia, forcing them back down, whatever, complete dominance. Yeah. And they don't have the. It's it's all falling apart. It's coming apart at the seams for them. It's like that Kuwaiti story of the Kuwaiti uh, the, the babies in the incubators. If you imagine the day after that was she testified to Congress. About that, it's a day after it was revealed that who she was and it was a complete lie. That's what's happening today. That's how bad it is for the US today. Yeah. Because as soon as they produce these new images, by and large, these new images of Russian artillery in Ukraine are laughed at. Not even a day later. It's like ten minutes on Twitter later, and people yeah. are making fun of it, and nobody believes it. So it's not. It's uncomfortable for them. But yeah, tough shit. And it's producing all kinds of of crazy making effects. Well, on their, on their part. I mean, Obama put in front of uh, a camera this week to give an interview to Vox Media, which is yeah, it's basically a new website, but actually it's a major online corporation. It's set up started by the former head of AOL, I think. So not a nobody, but anyway, he's put up there and he's told to say something, and they have a conversation about world affairs and what's going mm-hmm. on at the moment. And Obama has to, you know remind people that the U.S. spends 10 times more on its military than the next five combined or whatever. Ten. And he has to remind them that, you know, now and again, we strong-arm people into doing it. They yeah. don't do what we want. We tell them what to do. Let's be honest. I mean, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> it got to the point where he has to, like, spe- do I have to spell things out in black and white? We own your ass. Yeah, that's what they're yeah. having to do. They have, yeah. They're being the last result. Yeah. There's they, nothing else. Yeah, so the, the the mask comes off and they feel, okay, we're up against it so much here. Maybe they don't consciously think this, but what happens is that they, they feel that pressure of the um, of the opposition, a strong opposition against them, and it's not working out. They're not getting away with what they usually get away with. And they just start, 
you know, they, they, they're not following the script and feel like they need to, okay, instead of implied power or winking and nod, everybody knows the U.S. reigns reign supreme. It seems that some people are thinking that maybe that isn't true anymore. So we have to be more clear about it and say it openly. The U.S. is the most powerful country in the world. We have the biggest and most powerful military in the world. And you better, you know what I mean, kind of do what we say or, you know, what I'm saying with the whole military thing and stuff, you know, and I'm the district commander-in-chief, you know. I mean, it, it's barely veiled anymore. Like, it's thre- threatening. What the yeah. U.S. has always done covertly, it's now being forced to do a little bit more overtly to maintain this position. And it's delusional. Uh, the delusional aspect of it leaks in. I mean, this may, may have been just a, a mistake, but when Obama said in that Vox News interview last week, um, he said we have the... He said, we're the most powerful country in the world, and we are the biggest country. Uh, the largest. We're the largest country in the world. Now, of course, Russia is almost twice the size of America. Yeah. America isn't even second yeah. uh, in terms of Come mass. Of but, but, I mean, that's the, it, the mentality he has that he's been imbued with and brought up with is that not only is America... The, the, has, not only does it have the greatest, strongest military and the, and the biggest economy, but it's also, therefore, it must be actually the biggest country in yeah. the world, right? I mean, what America, what, takes up 50% of the world's landmass? More or less, right? I mean, that's what it feels like to me. <laughs> yeah. And you got a hint of it last year um, when... Oh, God, I forgot what I was about to say now. Oh, yes. Well, they, they made express what's always been a kind of a covert doctrine among you know, wink, wink, in the no people in the yeah. U.S., that the U.S. does what it does because we are an exceptional nation. That was never really uttered. You wouldn't say that to the camera until last year. So again, fairly veiled uh, psychopathy with large. Yeah. But what is true is that the U.S. military budget is humongous, much greater than any other national military budget. But on the ground... Is it a reality that uh, U.S. troops, U.S. forces are so dominant? Oh well, yeah, they, I mean they are dominant in the sense that they threaten everybody and they place themselves all around the world in whatever it is, 100 and, uh, well, it's 181 technically. Almost every country in the world has a has a, a U.S. military base of some description or U.S. military presence of some description. Uh, so yeah, I mean they they rule the world militarily and they do have the strongest military, but and they have high tech, right? But Space. Right, but they, they've um, they've enforced that dominance through that military, but by by threats and by uh, implied threats that well, you know, we could come and, uh, and make an example of other making examples of other countries, you know, like Iraq and uh, Libya and, and Syria and stuff, you know, bombing them, etc. You know, they, they show their their their, their force, you know, and they show their strength periodically, and and assume that that will cow other people and other countries, but um, the problem is they can't. What are they going to do? If people start disagreeing with them, are they going to bomb everybody? No, they can't do that. No, it doesn't yeah. matter if you've got the biggest military in the world. Here's, uh, here's another problem, major problem, at least in terms of conventional warfare. Their troops have not been in a real war for 70 years. They don't know what it's like to actually fight. Well, Vietnam is a half-decent enemy. Maybe, maybe Vietnam. I mean, they did have but a, they still have... And there, they just resorted to, okay, just... just just let's pacify them. Let's just split the entire country, mm-hmm. carpet bomb it. Um, the American troops wouldn't probably wouldn't win a conventional fight. The American people with any stomach for a real fight. I mean, the American people have been conditioned and uh, programmed to 
with this idea that they're, that they're the greatest country in the world and the strongest military. Therefore, when we go anywhere, we have to win. So, and the people have come to expect that. So, if it ever happened where the U.S. military ever took on an equal foe and yeah. didn't come up, even just it was stalemate, if they got as good, if they got as good as they gave, basically, uh, I think the American people would would very quickly lose. It's very cynical of them, obviously. They would lose. They would lose the stomach for it if they if they started being defeated or a lot of soldiers started coming home in boxes. But it's very cynical of them to to support the military and support the U.S. and think the U.S. is the greatest country in the world as long as they're always winning. Uh, you know, we're always beating down the small guys. You know? Oh yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's not exactly a very honourable uh, approach to take. You know, so. Uh, I, I read something today that ties into it. It's it's. <laughs> I, I probably I knew it before, but when it's spelled out in black and white, you go, okay. So, in among the noises coming out of Greece, in terms of which way do we look, west or east, kind of thing. Um, apparently, there's some discussion in the Greek government about where in the future to buy their arms from. Traditionally, they bought them from the U.S. and Western corporations, but somebody in Greece said uh, he's just quoted as a Greek weapons expert. He said they're thinking of switching to buying Russian arms, but they're more reliable and effective during crises since, quote, they cannot be switched off by the manufacturers of weapon systems produced in the U.S. And then there's, he goes on, think about what happened to Saddam Hussein. He bought French weapons, including air defense systems, radars. At the critical moment, all electronics were switched off remotely via satellite. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, I did not think of that before. That's why Saddam never gave a damn response, because mm. the weapons they gave him, they, they control. They just, mm. they, they, that's the only way they will enter into a fight with him, if they mm. control it. Yeah, if they know they're going to win. Yeah. If it's going to be a turkey shoot. I mean, America is just, I mean, the reality of, of America and the American military and what it does in the world is so completely opposite of what people believe it to be, what they've been programmed, you know, to believe that the American military stands for and what it does. You know, that, that it goes around the world as world police protecting the the underdog and uh, fighting for freedom and democracy and bringing people out of uh, you know slavery etc cetera, etc. Cetera. When the 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 opposite the opposite? exact opposite yes. is true, they go around the world attacking and shooting largely defenseless people, and that's why they've reigned supreme because they've chosen their battles in that way and they've manipulated wars and conflicts in the way that in such a way that they would always win, which means that. You're fighting someone who's effectively defenseless, and uh, and all at all spheres they do it. I mean, they come in saying we're going, we'll give you a massive loan and then to boost your economy. And what they do is they inject funny money into the country that they know that they'll be indebted. Then they know they won't be able to start paying back the interest, and boom, American corporations suddenly own all the assets in the country. Yeah. That's yeah. the economic hitman. Yeah. So at all spheres it works that way. You know, we you need us, so here we'll make a deal with you, and it seems attractive initially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you realize, oh my God, what just happened? It's a trap. And what you say is true. And in addition to the interest and the very real collateral assets, like land or houses, whatever, there are also the conditions to get the, the IMF or World Bank or US uh, funding. Usually, your country will only get the loan, which is a toxic loan, if it agrees to privatize and destroy the, the social. Uh, um, laws and so yeah, it's a, it's a trap. It's a huge trap. That's actually holy trap. That's actually what's happening. I mean, I don't know if people are aware of it. But there's been uh, a lot of changes in Yemen uh, over the past uh, four or five months. 
starting last September, there was a, a kind of coup by the the rebels there, the Houthi rebels, um, and and it, it kind of progressed to the point where last month, January, they um, they stormed the presidential palace and, and um, didn't want the president to resign, but he resigned anyway. So there's been a big change there in Yemen, and just recently, just uh, this past week. Uh, the U.S. Embassy and Brits and a bunch of other embassies all uh, evacuated all of the personnel under the U.S. under Marine Marine Guard, etc., um, and left because the, the U.S. Embassy isn't just any old embassy. It has a bunch of Marines attached to it and a lot of weapons and actually military vehicles as well, you know, Humvees, etc. So um, they had to leave all of those, but apparently they broke them all so that the, the Houthi rebels wouldn't get them, you know. But they've also asked that if any of them were still in working order, could they give them back, please? Well, this is what Jane Saki said at the State Department that we've asked them, you know, not to. And uh, so basically, these, I mean, I'll just read you one quote that sums up uh, these Houthi rebels have been, this has been an ongoing problem in Yemen since 1950 when, under British occupation, where the British basically did what they did in most of the other Middle Eastern countries, which was set up, uh, you know, these kind of um, trumped up kind of sheiks or emirs, etc., mm. to uh, who would be loyal to the British for exchange for power and wealth, etc. It was yet, trying to to kick out any Nasserites because Egypt right. was aligned or trying to get aligned with the Emirates. right, basically pan Arab socialist yeah. nationalism, killer nationalism, which the British didn't want because of the well the access to uh, kind of the Horn of Africa and the Indian Ocean it was a very important kind of uh, strategically important for the British at the time, and it continues to be important for Western powers, including the U.S. I mean, France's total has oil interests in Yemen. BP has oil interests in Yemen. But uh, the people there have been, you know, living under that kind of a regime, which has created a kind of a very poor kind of underclass. And it's these Houthi rebels that uh, that make up the fight. They've been fighting for quite a long time, but they've, uh, they're the ones who finally, uh, uh, you know, were able to basically stage a coup uh, and get rid of the these kind of tin pot dictators that have been established for Western interests. And last August, when they were getting close to um, affecting this uh, change of government, uh, they said, the um, spokesman said, our demands are like the demands of the Yemeni people who seek a decent life, a good economy, security, stability, and freedom of expression. You know, they're not, these these people can't be characterized as fundy Islamic nutjobs. I think it's not IS or anything like that. These are genuine people who have had enough, basically, and just want proper infrastructure in the country and an end to corruption. Um, and they seem to have, have achieved quite a lot, although it's, you know, there's obviously going to be, you know, pros and pro and uh, contra groups and stuff in, in the country. But I don't think the West is going to just walk away from that. You know, I think Yemen is going to kind of explode in, in the near future as a result of, of this. You know, they're not going to sit back unless they can um, find some accommodation with these these people, but if these Houthi rebels are uh, kind of true to their origins, essentially, then it's anathema to what the West wants, and the West is going to probably, I wouldn't be surprised if you see some kind of a civil war type situation springing up. Terrorism? Saudi Arabia. And then bombing, you know, what happened last time. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, Yemen was just, I mean, an example of the underwear bomber. Remember the Nicker bomber? Mm-hmm. He was trained supposedly by Al Qaeda in Yemen, which is just a Western construct, um, and that's why. And that was it. that was done. That he was used, and he was. If you read, I wrote an article on it called uh, "Crushing the Underwear Bomber: Crushing Freedom with Phony Arab Terrorism." Uh, he was like under some kind of um, 
he was sedated in some way or he was on some kind of drugs and he was escorted onto the plane and I think he had a handler on the plane. Wasn't he the son of a Nigerian banker? Exactly. He was just this young guy who was totally manipulated, you know, and he tried to set fire to his underpants basically on the plane and that was a bomb, you know, and it was just fizzled and burned his burned his kecks, you know. But the thing is that was used then yeah. That was in two thousand eleven and, and that was used to up the whole drone strikes and uh um you know, basically U.S. military focus on Yemen to keep their people in power and to, I mean, when they said they were fighting al-Qaeda in Yemen, they were bombing and droning, uh, sending missiles from drones against these rebels, rebels ordinary people. Yeah. Yeah. The same as, let's say, Ukrainian rebels. They're yeah. the same kind of people. They wanted actual democracy, actual freedom, and uh, but it's called al-Qaeda in Yemen, which is totally... Liberal yeah. terrorists who won case, won for the case... Uh, yeah, the under Obama, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the justification. You know, quick, this yeah. guy tried to blow up a plane coming into Chicago or wherever it was by lighting his underpants on fire, and he was trained. We our intelligence, our machine called intelligence that spits out this intelligence, also known as the, uh, you know, uh, the Brookings Institute uh, or similar kind of think tanks. They told us that Yemen was was the. Uh, Al Qaeda in Yemen trained him to try and attack America with an airplane. Remember what happens when America gets attacked by airplanes. So we need you, tin pot dictator in in Yemen, to allow us access or allow our drones access to blow up uh, you know people in houses at wedding parties, etc. In Yemen and keep these people down. And of oh, course, terrorist cell. It's called terrorist terror cell. Of course. Oh right, yeah, yes. Yeah. Sorry, I'm diverting diverging from the script there. And. Um, what was uh, and obviously the 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 leader in Yemen who has been in a long line is part of a long line of you know quislings essentially um, Western quislings. Uh, he's he's happy to do that because your enemy is my enemy. It's it's the unrest in my country. You know what? If, if I if I don't do something about it and I can't do something about it on my own because they're too strong, I need your help to keep them down so I stay in power. It's all just there. Yeah. Win win. It's also prosaic, and that's why it bugs me about the whole terrorism and war and terror and all these convoluted narratives and stuff. If people just got real about it and just imagined, you know, I don't know, people can allow for the fact or have even maybe some experience of somebody in their neighborhood or a schoolyard bully, even. <clears throat> the idea of a schoolyard bully and what his motivations are. You know? It's very simple and prosaic and. And accessible to people to understand what's going yeah. on in the world and why it's happening, but they don't apply it because they're bamboozled and bullshitted with all of these supposedly noble ideals of freedom and democracy and the evil enemy, the boogeyman, Al Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, blah 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 blah. But if you just push all that away as obvious propaganda nonsense, you can understand what's happening on the planet just on the basis of largely normal, let's say normal human. Uh, motivations, yeah. with the exception of it's not really normal human; it's pathological, and you know, even involving psychopaths, etc. But it's still, it's still something that to which people can relate. True, that people have personal experiences of in microcosm, and they could understand it very easily. But also, the impediment, apart from the propaganda, the impediment to them going there and accepting that reality, which is far more uh, believable and realistic is that it would involve a dismantling of their own kind of uh, image of themselves and the world as part of uh, the Western world and civilized and freedom and democracy. Everybody 
people in the West all feel good about those ideas, you know. So that's why they support the government and the propaganda. Yeah, tell us more. Tell us more about how we're going around the world being civilized and giving wonderful technology and freedoms to all these people because we we enjoy them here and we want everybody else to have them. You know, people themselves are invested in perpetuating propaganda bullshit. So that not only is the government lying to them, but they're lying to themselves. And I think you just wake up for a minute and say, listen, just get over yourself for a minute. Just stop your brain for a second, you know, and just think about this in practical terms and how it would happen if what you understand happens on a micro scale in your local community or at your local school with a bully or some asshole in your neighborhood who's terrorizing the whole neighborhood. Just expand that out to a global sphere. And you see, it all becomes quite clear what's actually happening and why it's happening. Yeah. It's not a mystery. It's exactly that. It's exactly that. And uh, <clears throat> psychopathy on a micro scale, exemplified by the bully, schoolyard bully, is exactly the same as what to describe previously, we were talking about the U.S., U.S. empire, macro-social entity, which doesn't back down, which doesn't see reality as it is, that is into wishful thinking, that is into violence, driven by greed, mm-hmm. always more power, never, evo- never evo- enough. Will evoke pity. Yeah. To, it, oh, yeah. to deserve his agenda in a certain situation. Like, uh, uh, we were attacked. Yeah, we have to. You know, I'm the victim now. So have to defend freedom. Yeah, switching from victim to aggressor and back. You know, just all sorts of manipulations to get what they want. Yeah, the, people know this. There's a remarkable choreography going on this week between the White House and ISIS. I don't know how this happens, but you know, ISIS has announced that it's setting up, um, creating provinces outside of Syria and Iraq, and they're setting up. I mean. Bluster, really, but the uh, the gist of it is that ISIS, as far as it's concerned, it's expanding its caliphate. It's taking Afghanistan and Pakistan next, and all of North Africa, and Bosnia too, by the way. And at the same time, Obama announces um, he's seeking unlimited three-year yeah. war against ISIS wherever they may come up anywhere like in the Syria. world. That's just a replay of no, the but, no, but like Syria, like North, like Europe, like North yeah. Africa, like all the way into Central Asia. It doesn't matter wherever it rears its ugly head. But that's a reiteration. You, you thought re- you thought voting in Obama, yeah, ended ended all this bullshit. Guantanamo. But, but that's a reiteration or a retooling of the war on terror. They said that about the war on terror when when after nine eleven, uh, they said that they were going after. Al-Qaeda and its affiliates wherever they are in the world, and there were all sorts of generals and different people saying, "Yeah, this is going to go on." You know, it's basically an unending war, or it's going to be at least fifty years or sixty years. Some ridiculous things like this, you know, where they, where, where it was totally uh, incongruous with with the actual threat. They're supposedly you're going after one small group of people, but then you expand out, you know, there's little cells everywhere. They like metastasizing all around the world, and it'll just keep going. We hit it in one place, and it'll pop up somewhere else. It has to be a war in the entire world. And it's just nonsense, you know. It's just totally unrealistic and unbelievable. But they get away with it because... It, but what they're, they're saying that because... Uh, the reason they're saying that, or the fact that they're saying that, exposes their real agenda, which is global domination. We want to be able... What they're really saying is we want to be able to put our military yeah, and attack right. any country around the world as we see fit when our interests are threatened and our interests are control of, of the entire world. Yeah. And... Here you can see a major inconsistency in a U.S. narrative, in the imperial narrative. On one side, there is this, uh, those technological achievements. When you see pictures from satellites, where today, 
and not only uh, released information today from a satellite that can read the newspaper, the letters on the newspaper reading. Okay? Time, they're telling us that they're not able to neutralize a few mm-hmm. crazy jihadists in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. And like pirates releasing this satellite picture. These really bad satellite pictures, yeah. The heavy artillery uh, battalion mm-hmm. is one grainy black dot. I'll tell you and why. And they can read a newspaper I'll tell you from why. a satellite. Exactly. The Russians have come out and said, in response to this, they've said, you know, most people know that the CIA or the NSA has satellites that can read. And I think the example they used or the uh, references was that it could, uh, in high definition, see something one meter square on the ground from space. And he said that basically means they can see very clearly a child's bicycle in someone's front yard. Uh, yeah, look at the Google Earth. Pay uh, that picture. It's 10 times it's worse, 100 times worse than, than Google Earth. Earth. And Google Earth is nothing compared to the top yeah. civil technology, yeah. which is nothing compared to the top military technology. So why are so they producing a, a group of jihadists or, or this miserable, this pathetic picture that do not fit they are inconsistent with the rest of the narrative. There's, there's well, those major yeah. inconsistencies. The, the reason why it's inconsistent is because, like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, ISIS doesn't exist. Yeah. I'm going to read you something I found from 2007. New York Times. Leader of Al-Qaeda group in Iraq was fictional, the U.S. military says. For more than a year, the leader of one of the most notorious insurgent groups in Iraq was said to be a mysterious Iraqi named Abdullah Rashid al-Baghdadi titular head of the Islamic State in Iraq, an organization publicly backed by al-Qaeda, Baghdadi issued a steady stream of incendiary pronouncements. Despite claims by Iraqi officials that had, he had been killed in May, Baghdadi appeared to, be, appeared to have persevered unscathed. On Wednesday, this is in 2007, a senior American military spokesman provided a new explanation for Baghdadi's ability, with, ability to escape attack. He never existed. Brigadier General Kevin Bergner, a chief American military spokesman, said the elusive Baghdadi was actually a fictional character whose audio tape declarations were provided by an elderly actor named Abu Abdullah al Naim. The boogeyman doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Just like Bin Laden died in 2001, a kid well, there, and then they recreated <laughs> videos where he got younger and they had fake voiceovers. They're literally Picking this shit up, but this is, there is this, no Baghdadi. But this, but this is a name Al Baghdadi that is not on people's radar until recently. That that report you're just reading from is from 2007. Mm-hmm. Nobody in 2007 had heard of Al Baghdadi. People in 2007, it was well, previous to that was 2006 when Al Zarqi. Everybody heard about Al Zarqi, the kind of guy with the with the kind of uh, black kind of tight hat on his head and a beard and stuff that was blown up. He was the leader of Al Qaeda in Iraq, and that's who the U.S. troops were fighting. I've already forgotten him, right? Right. He's the, he's the guy that the U.S. were fighting against up until 2006 when they bombed his house with two 500-pound bombs. But I actually had a good picture of him afterwards, uh, of his body. He had a little uh, scratch on his cheek or a little kind of little small bruise on his head. And this was after. And they have a video of him or oh, yeah. him of the, of the house being bombed, you know, uh, that kind of jet fighter. A grainy black and white image, you know, the camera on the plane. One ton bomb, something like that. A one ton bomb, yeah. And, the, you know, it, it, it was a bomb that just, you could see the house and trees around it and stuff. It was quite a big house, but not, you know, massive or anything. And he was in there, supposedly. They dropped this 1,000 pound bomb or two 1,000 pound bombs. And it just, you know, it's one of those bombs where it just creates an X, massive X blast, you know, like a cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
going out on both sides and there was just nothing left. Like level trees all the way around and there was just a crater. There was no house afterwards. And then they showed a picture of him and he was in the house and the house had been obliterated but he was in the house and they showed a picture of him afterwards. Yeah, we got him, he's dead. Here's his picture and he had a little cut in his cheek. So that's the kind of thing that has been passed off on people. But in 2007, then al-Baghdadi comes, not comes along, he just, he, or within that 2007 uh, article from the New York Times, um, but nobody really heard of him because after al-Zarqui, there was just this Mr. Magoo, uh, Zawahri, uh, who took over, well, there was Osama bin Laden still going on, and al-Zawahri, which was the guy with the glasses, the older guy with the white beard, and him and, him and Osama were leading the crusade until Osama was taken care of and dumped. You know, he was sent to swim with the fishes with some concrete boots, supposedly. Uh, so the thing is, al-Baghdadi, the name, only appeared recently with ISIS. But this is a different al-Baghdadi. So, but it's, so it's really amazing that that story is there from 2007, saying that this al-Baghdadi that nobody had heard of in 2007, they're saying, they were saying in 2007, he didn't exist. We don't, nobody really knew about him, but they're saying in 2007, he didn't really exist. He was a fictional character and his voice, anything he recorded was voiced by an actor, etc. <clears throat> and that it was used, like you were just saying, it was used to, um, well, what did he actually say? What was what was the rest of the report? you have it there? Yeah, I do, yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm pretty, uh, in, their, in their narrative that was being said at the time, this Rashid al-Baghdadi was the head of Islamic State in Iraq. Right. Organization backed by Al-Qaeda. Right. So it's this minor story basically called that in 2007 there was this, an organization called Islamic State in Iraq, right, ISIS. The ploy was to invent Big Baghdadi, a figure whose very name establishes his, his Iraqi pedigree. Called Baghdadi, Baghdadi, right. Install him as the head of a front organization called the Islamic State of Iraq and then arrange for Masri, I think that's then Prime Minister of Iraq. No, no, no. Masri was a different oh, terrorist. He was Al-Qaeda. Oh, there's a different story about him. When he made that statement, or when he made statements in the name of Al-Qaeda, uh, I wrote an article on it. He was in an Egyptian prison when he was recording, supposedly. I mean, the whole thing's just a farce. Go ahead. Um, the ploy was to get Baghdadi to swear an oath of allegiance to Masri and thereby establish Islamic State as, credentials as the successor organization of right. Al-Qaeda. And this is 2007, remember, yes. people, right? 2007, they were talking about IS with a leader called al-Baghdadi. Yeah. And now, what, six, it's just, eight, it's eight just years later, later the fight suddenly, it suddenly reappears. Yeah. Uh, a guy, a different guy called al-Baghdadi, uh, who is claimed to be the leader of Islamic State. Islamic State. But in 2007, someone, his, his namesake, was doing the same thing, creating a... a, a an organization that has been exposed in 2007 as a front organization. Yeah. And then it repeats eight years later and nobody bats an eyelid. I mean, when you well, what is it? it's, it's telling us that, okay, they have some control over the Middle East so that they, like you were saying earlier, they, what they can't do in Ukraine is actually get in there and control the facts on the ground. So they can actually, via Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Lebanon, and other countries, they can actually get enough nut jobs into the region if they look at these idiots waving flags and executing people so that's real we're not suggesting that's fictional that's very much real there are these assholes terrorizing people in the Middle East most of them actually from Europe but anyway um, the narrative the plot lines it's all fictional 
really what they're working with. The war on terror is basically a series of plot lines that are invented, recreated, or, or wheeled back out whenever expedient. A series of plot lines and a great big database. That's what Al-Qaeda is. It's a database of informants, of people who got swept up as police informants, usually back in Europe, because they were into drugs and they got them in the wrong crowd. And then the, the system says, well, we'll let you off if you do a little thing for us. And next thing you know, they're wearing turbans and they're going to the Middle East, waving black flags. And it's great fun shooting up people. But here's and that's the war on terror. Yeah, and to go along with that, this is a, a mainstream media report that's in the Telegraph, the one I, that I'm reading from 2004, that says the first line is Abu Musab al-Zarqi, the terrorist leader. This is the guy I was talking about who was killed in the bombing and was the leader of Al Qaeda in Iraq against uh, from 2004 until 2006 for two years. He was what the U.S. was fighting against in Iraq. He said. The terrorist leader believed to be responsible for the abduction of Kenneth Bigley, which was one of these videos of a beheading, one of the early videos right. of beheading, is more myth than man, according to an American military intelligence agent in Iraq. Several sources said the importance of Zarqi blamed for many, blamed for many of the most spectacular acts of violence in Iraq, has been exaggerated by flawed intelligence and the Bush administration's desire to find a villain for the post-invasion mayhem. Uh, this guy says these U.S. military intelligence agents in Iraq say we were basically paying up to ten thousand dollars a time to opportunists, criminals, and chancers who passed off fiction and supposition about Zarqui as cast iron fact, milking him, milking him out as the linchpin, making him out as the linchpin of just about every attack in Iraq. Back home, this stuff was gratefully received and formed the basis of policy decisions. We needed a villain, someone identifiable for the public to latch onto, and we got one. So these guys, these are U.S. military intelligence analysts saying this in 2004, and this wasn't. This is in the mainstream media, but obviously had no bearing on the on, on the narrative, on the truth of the situation. Yeah. It didn't affect the, the truth of the situation, which was that they were making it all up. The whole point was it was the schoolyard bully making up uh, stories about other kids who were attacking him and were stealing from him, and this is why he had to do this. You know, that's what it is. It's fairly prosaic and simple. You know. But uh, people don't want to believe it, you know. And I think there's something very psychopathic in there. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but the fact that the bully, or that uh, here, a U.S. agent, released the information and tell the truth. Yeah, we made this uh, terrorist leader, we made it up. It was created out of nothing. I think it, it's psychopathic in the sense that it's uh, you abuse the people, you lie to the people, and in addition, you tell them that you lied. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is very disheartening, as you said, and uh, you said it previously as well, is that uh, this all psychopathic um, dynamics at the micro-social level, the, the local bully, as well as the macro-social level, the U.S. or the Western Empire, can only last if there is this uh, right. agreement, the threat, but only the, this agreement or non-reaction, this apathy mm -hmm. from the people, because they say it to 0.1% or whatever mm -hmm. percentage, is only living, sustaining its wealth and its power because of us, mm -hmm. because of our work. Mm -hmm. The industries, the, all the production comes yeah. from normal, normal exactly. people. And to keep those people down, that is the source or the focus of the war on terror. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the war on Muslim terror, terrorism is absolutely a ruse to justify Western government bombing of the ordinary citizens of countries who right. happen to live in countries that 
happen to be of strategic interest to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And the U.S.'s overarching strategic interest is maintaining control over probably the most important region in the world, which is Eurasia, and therefore their main enemy is Russia, and therefore the war on terror ultimately is focused on containing Russia and securing all that the U.S. and the West needs to secure to make sure that Russia never rises up into a position where it can actually threaten U.S. hegemony. It's really false when you were describing how phony and fabricated manufactured those uh, so-called terrorist leaders like al-Zakawi or al-Baghdadi were. I had this picture in my mind where you're like, you know this puppet master on the left hand he had John Kerry wearing a American flag t-shirt and on the other side he had al-Baghdadi or al-Zakawi or whatever mm. terrorist leaders and they're talking to the audience, us, the people. And al-Zakawi is saying, be afraid, be very afraid. We're terrorist leaders, we're very mean, we will destroy you. And then John Kerry is saying, no, no, don't worry, we are the, the U.S. state, we're going to protect you. Well, we have to, to pay a bit more for mm-hmm. taxes, for uh, military expenses. And you will have to forget about some of your civil rights, but it's all for the good, and then we prevent the terrorist threat. And yeah. and and it brings to what you were, what we are saying that uh, ISIS they will not destroy ISIS because a it does not exist, and b I mean this bunch of mercenaries that are so easy to neutralize, they need them because it's almost two sides of the same coin. The U.S. administration or and ISIS are complementary. Two cheeks to the same arse. <laughs> <laughs> that should need a that needs a good kick, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the Economist had a magazine cover this week, and they have Putin, you know, with a shadowy image of Putin or a photo, and he is holding up a hand with all the strings dancing below. Talk about projection, projection, big time. In a way, they're kind of right, though. Putin does have the situation by the proverbial balls. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be a, a puppet master or, or yeah. puppet masters or people who are controlling things from behind the scenes and using their power and influence to, to control other people. But the question is, uh, what is their agenda? Cool. What are they trying to do as a result of that? I mean, it seems to be that unless you live in some utopian idea world type thing where everybody, everything's out in the open and everybody tells the truth and nobody ever influences anybody else, uh, that's not the world we live in. So in this world and in the nature of it, <clears throat> in the nature of human beings, I suppose, requires some people to be in control and there to be secrets and influence and manipulation and all that kind of stuff. So let's not diss it. That's the way it is and that's the way it seems to have to be in this world. But the question is, like you said, what's the agenda? What What yeah. is the purpose of that, you know? And I mean, it's always going to be enemies. It's always going to be them versus us in this world in some, to some degree. Of course, in front of you, that's the Western Empire. That's a big, big player. So even if you use all this behind-the-scene uh, negotiation and you don't tell all the truth and uh, you use communication and uh, smartly, like Putin does, he's not even sure you're going to win. Mm. So if you're in this uh, unicorn fairy world where you tell everything to everybody, you're sure you're going to lose. Mm. The enemy is too big, too powerful. Yeah. So there are a couple other terror attack type things going on. This is this is what uh, drives the whole thing, keeps taking over, you know, the periodic terror attacks. It kind of reminds me of Plato's cave a little bit, the way we were talking about it there, you know, like seeing images on the wall and people believing that the images cast were actual, what was actually going on as opposed to just shadows on a wall, you know, that the actual movements were happening, by, happening behind them. People in the theater watching a play on a stage 
and there's good guys and bad guys, like you're saying, two puppets, and one of them saying, ah, 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 I'm going to get you, I'm the evil man. No, don't get me, we'll get him, get him. And there's, you know, there's a drama going on, and people are in, 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 in transfixed by it. But the difference is, that's kind of the way it works in this world, except that they make it more real by, if you imagine a theater where everybody's watching that on stage, and they have a bad guy and a good guy, and they're rooting for the good guy, and there's a bad guy. Um, but uh, now and again, someone in the audience is actually killed. to really make it real when the bad guy on stage says I'm going to kill someone you know somebody actually dies and everybody in the audience is actually terrified you know and they remain even more transfixed to the drama exactly what happened in in Copenhagen yeah I mean they were actually in the middle of having a little meeting about um, the fallout from Just Free Charlie and a woman there is giving a speech about freedom of speech and democracy and we will not bow and the next thing you hear over the audio that's been released Someone shooting through the window. Yeah. And what is another very psychopathic trait is how they keep reenacting almost exactly the same script. When you read it, it it's okay. The several shooters are only one, and then after, like I in a Toulouse or like in Charlie Hebdo, how the, many more times after doing a shooting? That's a, the ritual. That's a tradition. You have to go to a synagogue or a, a Jewish place or. A, yeah, Kasha market, some threats, and uh, it's it's caricatural. And this lack of creativity is a hallmark of the psychopathic mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. this guy was a 21-year-old Danish-born, known by the secret uh, by the intelligence. Did he play computer? Known, uh, probably, probably from one, like one of our callers from last. He week. was one of the battle toads. He had to kill some fags. He's from 4chan. Uh, yeah, this guy's 21. They haven't said, they said he's Danish, 21 or 22-year-old Danish-born. Therefore, they assume he could be a good Middle Eastern or Irish. They haven't released that. They're being a bit cagey about that. For some, they only release his name, you know. But so he goes, he killed someone at that at this uh, meeting that you're talking about, a meeting about free speech. And, uh, hey, it was a fairly low-key affair. And yet, apparently, the French ambassador had just given a talk. Right. So he was present. So they, one person's killed. And then later on that evening, which was last night, he goes to a synagogue and shoots uh, a guy at the synagogue and wounds another person. So he killed two people. And then he takes off to a house and they have him under surveillance and then he's shooting at them supposedly and then uh, he gets shot. So um, what the interesting thing is that, you know, the, so the one, the event of going to a synagogue, uh, Netanyahu immediately came out and capitalized on that mm-hmm. uh, by, yeah, I mean, they're putting up 180 what um, what's what's the conversion rate of uh, news really shekels to dollars? It's something like 180 million NIS news really shekels. So it's 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 a lot, uh, bigger than dozens of millions, whatever, to facilitate Aliyah, which yeah. is a movement of and Netanyahu came on and made a speech in Hebrew, uh, encouraging, very emotionally telling all the Jews of Europe that uh, well, you need protection; they should be protected everywhere. But this is another example of how you're under threat and. Israeli government, you know, Israel is your home, blah, 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 blah. You need to come to Israel, come to Israel, mm. come to Israel. Uh, and I think a lot of people, a lot of Jews are going to uh, heed that call, you know, uh, which is strange because, I mean, I can't think of a more dangerous place in the Middle East right now. You know? As we said during the previous show, Netanyahu did the same speech, basically, in France right after the Charlie Hebdo event. In France today, which is a small country, uh, is the first provider of alayas in the world. And uh, Denmark would follow, of course, because uh, most people 
Jew or not Jew, buy into the, the terrorist uh, narrative. Yeah, and I mean, I, uh, it's terrible because, I mean, it's almost like you see this train wreck coming, you know, uh, and yeah, I mean, you can't do anything about it, but this idea that has been going on for a long time where Israel has been encouraging, aggressively encouraging Jews to go back to Israel. I mean, I wrote a, 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 an article, or I read an article, maybe, I'm not sure if I wrote it or not. Anyway, it was called it was something, it was basically talking about gathering all the Jews into one place. Because that was a quote by someone, I can't remember who it was, but someone had this ideal of gathering all the Jews into one place, you know? It was Golda, what's her name? Golda Meir. Yeah. Uh, former Israeli uh, Prime Minister. But um, it was just, it was kind of a lament for the ridiculousness and the misguided uh, policy of getting as many of the Jews of the world into Israel while it ha- when it has been for 60 years uh, a tinderbox and it's only getting worse, and it's only gotten worse really over those over those years. Under the, you know, supposed uh, objective, supposed Jews. objective of protecting them, of, of keeping them, of, of it never happening again, with their with their white guys. Because I mean, I mean, it's the mainstream media and the Western governments and everybody has been talking for a long time about the idea that you know the Middle East is a tinderbox and it could be ignited at any moment, uh, and it. You know, you could have major war there. You know, you have, uh, you are talking about Iran having the bomb, you know, yeah. that's probably not the case. But Israel has nuclear weapons. But, I mean, there are plenty of uh, heavily armed Arab countries all around Israel. You know, and why put all the Jews in one small piece of land in the Middle East surrounded by enemies that, that continue to be provoked as enemies? It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It does, it's not, it's irrational. We even know rational. And for people to do their aliyah, they need to be hysterized because objectively the threat in Western countries is not this big. I'm talking about statistics here, about the actual data. And uh, so they are so hystericized that they come to think that living in Israel is part of a keg in the, in the Middle East surrounded by uh, Muslim countries. It's safer living in Denmark or France. So there's a there's a serious man job, mind job going on here. And that's why along the this uh, terrorist attacks there's a lot of uh, mediatization of uh, anti-Semitism. Real or fake, whatever. But in the end, in the news it's, uh, it's all over the place. And it adds up to this uh, sentiment of paranoia or fear or threat. Mm-hmm. That is necessary for, for for those Jewish people to to make the, this movie, which is a big move because not only you are talking about objective safety that is low in Israel in the Middle East in general, plus when you do your aliyah, you leave a country like France or Denmark, which are kind of uh, countries, uh, you have a life there, you have a, a network, and then you go to uh, in, the, yeah, in the Middle East yeah, in the desert mm-hmm. to live. It's very strange. Well, it's more than that. You've been there. You've been there for generations, mm-hmm. hundreds of years. But that's true. If true anyone, if life. anyone needs, to, if any religious group needs to consider getting out of Europe, it's surely the Muslims. Yeah. If you can go back to, but this, this, of course, that's what the far right are said. They're saying, go home. You know, what? get out of our country. I mean, that's that's on the rise in a yeah. visible way. What's strange about this Copenhagen shooting is that this guy had a violent past and was known to police. Mm. You know, I mean, he was involved, he'd been arrested, 
uh, on several occasions he would have known that uh, even having you know uh, involved in I think uh, weapon smuggling and, and stuff like that, so he wasn't your average low level yeah. kind of criminal. They found know? him and they killed him, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, he shot at them supposedly and they shot him. But um, it's very strange that someone like that, and if he turns out not to be of any kind of Middle Eastern or Arab. Mm. I think North African extraction. Well, they, they have. They give him. They announced the name before we came on air. They did. They gave him the Mohammed Arabi, Al Baghdadi. No, something. Something, something of Middle Eastern origin. Are you sure? Hmm. Because uh, I couldn't find anything about his name. And um, try, try or the. Um, anyway, he was Danish born. Yeah. The po- the point being that you know he had this violent past, but no, apparently no past of anti-Semitism or anything like that. But and they're trying to figure out if it was linked to the Charlie Hebdo attacks or if he, if he was inspired by them or something like that. But it's just strange that someone who would be, you know, who has this violent past appears to be a fairly, you know, current blood leader. Well, a, a determined kind of criminal type thing, you know, and with criminal behavior of a general sort, would then suddenly go and shoot someone at a synagogue. You know, it's 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 very strange, you know, yeah. uh, that he would choose to do that. And, and it, you know, and what kind of what kind of climate has been created? Even if, if if that's in that case, what kind of climate has been created where he would, you know, of, of the two options he had type of thing, you kill someone at one of these uh, at a free speech kind of talk, and then he goes, uh, "Well, I'm going to go to the synagogue now." You know? Yeah. What's the connection? To... I'm not seeing the connection. No, I don't know. But I mean, it's repeating itself. Yeah, I don't the, understand. Yeah, the connection is obvious. What we need right now is a clear message to the people of this country. This message must be read in every newspaper, heard on every radio, seen on every television. This message must resound throughout the entire interlink. I want this country to realize that we stand on the edge of oblivion. I want every man, woman, and child to understand how close we are to chaos. I want everyone to remember why they need us. Yeah, that's why it happens. Well, that's why it happens, but uh, I would... That's why it happens, but also I just think it's very bizarre uh, that it would, you know, I mean, mean, of course, Netanyahu and the Israelis are are waiting for any moment to to give them a justification to help because they want Jews to come to Israel. So they're waiting uh, to capitalize on any any reason whatsoever where a Jew is attacked or a Jewish person is killed or whatever. Um, But it's just, the whole thing is bizarre that it would... uh, that it feeds into that. You know I mean, that it happens so consistently. You well, know I mean? that, uh, especially after Charlie Hebdo and then this, you know, I mean... It, but no, but it also it, fe- it feeds into what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah. You know, a peace deal and then, oh, terror attack in Europe. Remind them why they need us. Mm. I'm thinking here of the U.S. occupation of Europe. Mm. You know? Yeah, there's... I don't think we mentioned it. If I correctly remember, during the Swiss speech event in Copenhagen, one of the guests... Was Lars um, the cartoonist guy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who made the initial cartoon yeah. in 2004, uh, 2005, anti-Muslim cartoon that was then translated by Charlie Hebdo and published by Charlie Hebdo, yeah, and that led to the alleged first attack, for attack, uh, the burning, the burning of the, of the offices. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so there's a, there is a, <clears throat> the modus operandi is the same, and the connection between Charlie Hebdo event and the Copenhagen event is. Very clear. You have the French ambassador, because you have the, the cartoonist mm-hmm. who studied the, all the controversy yeah. about there's, the Muslim uh, there's, mar- there's markers there, basically, uh, that take you straight back yeah. to Charlie Hebdo. And the media is trying to, 
to promote it and stuff. And yeah, it's like a reminder. <clears throat> it's like someone, like this guy, this criminal guy, for some reason decided to just uh, stage his attack in such a way that it wouldn't provide a stark reminder to the public, particularly in Europe, uh, of the Charlie Hebdo attack. And we even had a the replay of Netanyahu saying the same thing in response to this attack as he said in response to the Charlie Hebdo attack, yeah. which was Jews need to come to Israel, Jews need to come to Israel. It's just, it's just bizarre. I mean, I'm not a coincidence theorist, you know? I don't like to, uh, you know, go too crazy about coincidences or anything like that, you know? I mean, forget about conspiracy theories, but <clears throat> they're even worse. But coincidence theories are just, I mean, I think it's a sign of irrationality, you know, among people who who focus on coincidences all the time and say that, you know, oh, it's just a coincidence because that's not the way the world works, you know. Um, usually uh, there's there's a means and a method and a, and a plan and a, a strategy. Even with the ordinary person in the street, they have some plan to do certain things. Things just don't happen so easily by coincidence, you know. And you see a lot of coincidence theorists in the government and, uh, you know, um, and in the media. And I think we really need to come down hard on coincidence theorists, you know, because they're kind of like, a, I think they're dangerous to uh, rational human discourse and, uh, you know, just in general, the health of society, you know, for a healthy social mind type thing. Coincidence theorists in government and the media should be, uh, I don't know, maybe, I think that maybe should be some law that passed uh, outlawing coincidence theorists. Um, yeah, and people who visit like coincidence theorist websites, you know, where it's all explained, like mainly mainstream media websites, where it's all explained in this kind of like totally unbelievable, uh, irrationally bizarre way, where things just happen by accident, and we just have to respond to it spontaneously without looking to see an obvious narrative going on here. You know, it's just really yeah it's a sign of like a psychosis. I think and totally. I think Dave Cameron might be suffering from it. The British Prime Minister. I mean, the day of the Minsk agreement is signed and, you know, peace on Europe, that's in the air anyway. The British made sure that a shipment of armoured personnel carriers arrived in Kiev. Mm. Huh. Yeah, but that's just a coincidence. They would say that's a coincidence, but really that's, uh, it, it's, there's a certain mental fragility there, you know, and it's not good. No. Um, Roosevelt was not suffering from the coincidence theorist syndrome. Since he declared in politics, nothing happens by chance. And uh, this being said, this Copenhagen event, I think to me, it looks like a psychological operation. It's like it's been shown by science that uh, when you get a vaccine, if you get a very small dose a few weeks later of the same substance, the same vaccine, it's called a, a reminder jab. Uh, how do you call that in English when you get this second, uh, this second yeah. jab? Where we, we see. Uh, uh, this sudden jab, it will increase the potency of the initial injection. And maybe on a collateral, a similar pattern occurs where there's some kind of resonance or this reminder, you know, this very similar event at a smaller scale that is used to amplify the effects of the first event, mm. the Charlie Hebdo event, in our psyches. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That this, this guy needs to be investigated. He's been killed now. But everything should be done. Everything should be done to look at him and look at his past and look at his background to see uh, if there is a connection between him and the Charlie Hebdo attacks. You know, because they're so, it's so it seems so similar um, that it's almost like 
And that's what I'm saying. Coincidence theory doesn't get it here. It's not, they're not just two isolated incidents. This guy obviously had someone who maybe uh, was supporting him, I can, financing him, yeah. and that their goal was clearly to remind everybody about the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Now, I don't know who that could be, right? Who would want to do that or whatever. But uh, people, there's clearly a... It should be investigated, put that way. It should be investigated, the connection between these two events and who's behind him and who is trying to remind the European people about the Charlie Hebdo attacks and about everything that they were told then and why they would want to do that. That's the rational way to look at this. And within a couple of days, we'll hear that he was radicalized by a Yemeni cleric. Right, but that that may be the case. But I, I want to know why these radical clerics or groups that are behind him would want to have him do this in such a way as to send such a clear message to the people, ordinary people of Europe, to remind them about Charlie Hebdo, you know, and remind them about everything that they learned about Charlie Hebdo, which was that Muslims are evil, Muslims are terrorists. Why would, you know, we need, we need to look at that, you know, and there needs to be a government statement about it. I have complete faith in because otherwise we'll our government. But they won't do that because they're coincidence theorists. They'll say there's no direct connection. They'll look into it, they'll make mention of it, but they'll know they won't, they won't, uh, they won't follow that, uh, that logical process. Anyway, Canada did the same thing. Police foiled the shooting plot. Canada's gone all FBI terror plot. Uh, Canadian police say they foiled the plot to carry out a mass shooting in the Halifax area on Saturday, yesterday. Three suspects arrested and a fourth reportedly shot himself dead after police surrounded his home. Uh, or is that, was that an Islamic state of Ottawa? At least two suspects had intended to go to a public venue with the goal of opening fire to kill citizens. With the intention of? Yes. Okay. But then the Canadian... Read their intentions. Canadian FBI forgot to give them guns. Canadian C what's this C S I S they forgot to give them the guns and the boots to wage a full grand war in Canada. So it didn't work out. But they got them anyway. But that's the end of uh, yeah, that's Canada. That's Canada. That's where Canada's headed. Um there's a story uh just recently about um We know the means it means Canada has to fight them over there so they don't have to fight them over here. Yeah, yeah, and the population has to be primed in order to agree with uh, those uh, military operations overseas. And Canada had, had its own uh, terrorist event, so again, the, that's just a reminder, a, a secondary uh, vaccine jab. Yeah. It could just be a coincidence. Yeah, there, oh, you're falling into coincidence theory. theorist. coincidence theorist. You're one of those crazy coincidence theorists. Like, everything just happens just by accident and stuff, and it's not related. Nobody's, like, controlling anything, you know? It's all just, oh, look, just this happened, and that happened, and they're not connected, and no, there's no power behind anything. Nobody wants to do anything on this planet. It's all just, oh, oops, I did it again, you know, like Britney Spears says, you know. Sing it for us, Pierre. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> A senior American climate scientist has spoken of the fear he experienced when U.S. intelligence services apparently asked him about the possibility of weaponizing the weather as a major report on geoengineering is to be published this week. So this guy, Alan, he's Professor Alan Robach, stated that three years ago, two men claiming to be from the CIA called him to ask whether experts could be able to tell if hostile forces had begun manipulating the U.S.'s weather. So it's getting awful rainy over here. 
There's a lot of floods, a lot of droughts, a lot of tornadoes, there's thunder, snow, all sorts of stuff. Is it the Russians? Tell us. Are the Russians doing this? Isn't it how crazy these people are, you know? I mean, but what he actually said was he suspected that the purpose of the call was to find out if American forces could meddle with other countries' climates instead. So we can't screw Russia over in Ukraine. Let's see if we can, you know, give them a horrible winter or something. Let's, like, you know, can we dump, like, 500 feet of snow on Russia? And then wait a while until it falls, and then it'll be ours. <laughs> and that's that's the kind of, you know, this is what the CIA uh, spend their time doing, coming up with madcap, mad scientist kind of plots and ideas to uh, to try and maintain their control of the world. Basically, I mean, they're, they're nuts. They're crazy. They're they're crazy. But well, the strange thing is that, or the scary thing is that, you know, there may be some ability for them to actually go to some down that down that path a little oh, bit yeah. to actually start geoengineering and, and screw up the world for everybody, you know? I, but, re- uh, I remember during 9-11, there was a grade 3 hurricane 100 miles from New York. Oh, yeah. oh, just, coincidence. I don't remember because I didn't learn about it until 10 years later. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> That's mad. Um, but the, the, the thing about this is... Uh, most people online, you see, when they notice something odd with the weather, the, the gist of most of the comments are to the effect that this is all geoengineering by secret U.S. government. Mm. See, they're already convinced of these ideas that the extreme weather we're seeing is all of these madcap CIA scientists designed already in action. Mm-hmm. So this this Seeding this idea that this is actually a long time coming, yeah. and it's actually taking taking root out there in people. It's been such that the first thing you hear, whenever there's something unusual happens, people go, "Oh, it's harp or yeah. chemtrails," or you know. Uh, and maybe the objective, maybe people posing as CIA agent, whether they were CIA agent or not, did give a visit to the scientist. But the objective was not to know about the ongoing technologies. The objective was for the scientists to talk to the media in order to reinforce the belief that indeed U.S. government was able to tamper weather, and, uh, and which is a way to distract from the reality, which is far grimmer than that. Yes, the weather is crazy, but human beings cannot alter it much. But much, much. But you don't have to worry because you know the green movement and the, the kind of global warmth and the people who want to save the planet from human-made anthropogenic uh, global warming, uh, they were in safe hands with them because there's uh, a woman called Christina Figueres, who is the executive secretary of the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change. She's like a top dog in climate change and pushing for you know all the measures to stop climate change and, and pushing the idea that the planet is warming and we're all going to be, you know, the Northern Hemisphere will all be living on boats, basically, because we'll be flooded in the southern hemisphere, they'll all be, you know, they'll all be dead because of drought. Um, but she said recently that, or what she said is being understood as an admission that it's not really about warming, that warming isn't really true, that the whole goal of pushing the warming agenda is to destroy capitalism. She said that this is the first time in history of uh, of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, 
changing the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, see, and she was on. Uh, yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I've noticed that that's it. what their real agenda is—that they want to yeah. greenify the whole world yeah. and have us all vegetarians and you know living, I hugging think, cows. I, I think there's a strong, powerful faction there that wants to convince people of limited resources mm. that they did effectively, deliberately sabotage industrial development in the second and third world countries. Mm-hmm. In fact, they came, came up with this scale or hierarchy of first world, second world, third world. This all comes from papers going on in the 1970s in which they decided to come up with this idea that there were limits to growth mm-hmm. and that they would use the idea of a limited number of resources and global warming to convince people to basically agree to become poor. Yeah. Yeah, and here is a twist. You said, stay poor. You said something very, very important. Convince people to remain poor because as a way to protect the planet. Yeah. And that's a key element. And when you look at the hist- look at the history of the ecology movement and global warming, one of the main economic doctrines is the advocacy for negative growth. Negative growth means less resources consumed, uh, shrinking GDPs, less wealth, less money, less income. But in a nicer world. It's a kind of trade-off. But where it's very vicious is that today, look at the hard data, it's very clear. 1% owns as much as the poorest 99%. Let me repeat. The 1% owns as much as the other, the remaining 99%. So the problem doesn't come from the 99% data slaves to the elites and that are already poor. It's cunning in the sense that this ideology tries to make the slaves, the poor, accept and even embrace their poorness, not to save the planet, but in order to keep for the, rich, the 1% rich. to get even more. Yeah, it, it, their vision of the future is them with maybe a small slave population and yeah. all the useless eaters just yeah, so the, it's true. We consume more than the planet can give. We are destroying the planet, but it doesn't come from us, the poor. It comes from this, from a very small fraction of the population that abuse, use, rapes the population and the planet. And they won't change the mode of living, their way of living. So, yeah. And in the US, multiple major airline carriers have begun discussing requiring vaccination records for all passengers before allowing them to board a flight, i.e. if you haven't been vaccinated, you can't get on a flight. I mean, the vaccination business is going uh, a little bit too far in that clearly someone, i.e. Big Pharma, and, and the politicians who go through that revolving door between corporations and back into politics, um, they would like everybody, as many people in the U.S. as possible, to have to be vaccinated with, with you know, what? Well, anything. And the, the the whole idea is about um, uh, preventable disease spreading by way of air travel. Any kind of disease, airborne, whatever, flu, you know, Ebola, whatever they come up with next, you know, as, as the next care. Uh, they, they want to give people vaccinations. They want to force people. I mean, a lot of people travel by air in the U.S. and you know, back and forth, and, uh, and that would be the justification for sticking them with some mercury 
uh, or some on some dead aluminium semi dead virus. Probably have some good data that vaccinated populations are dumber, and so they see it works. So let's get this this roll this out. Dumber and not take a lot of money. Ah, they make money. So yeah, uh, papers please. It's uh, it's uh, back to the future. Yeah, to the Maybe the most damning evidence concerning vaccine yeah, it makes you dumber. It doesn't make you healthier, actually. When you look at the epidemiology studies, i.e. the epidemics within population, years after years, you see after the introduction of the vaccine, usually the rate of occurrence of the targeted disease, measles, for example, mm-hmm. or poliomyelitis, drops a little bit. Then it goes back to the initial level, and then it rises up. Mm-hmm. It's, so vaccine is counterproductive because in the long run. Yeah, because the, the disease uh, adapts, uh, the exactly. virus adapts. Yeah, there's been a lot of news about uh, a lot of stuff in the, in the media, and you know, and I get this from my intelligence sources. Really, this information, uh, same intelligence sources used by the U.S. government. Oh, social media. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in social media slash uh, intel circles about meals. You know, so it's yeah, it's. it's People, there's a big debate about people. Uh, there seems to be seems to be a big push on to have parents vaccinate their children against measles and even have adults vaccinated against measles, um, because you know there's new strains coming out all the time. But yeah, the MMR measles, mumps, and rubella uh, vaccination, they're pushing that. But obviously this includes adults, you know, as well. So it's very dystopian and weird and strange. And Another reason why the rate of occurrence of this disease increase after several years of vaccination, as you say, there are new strains, mutations, and also the vaccines are detrimental to health because of the additives mm-hmm. you mentioned, mm-hmm. mercury, yeah. aluminium, all those chemicals, they reduce the efficiency of your immune system. That is the first defense, natural defense, and very efficient defense where it's not compromised by those additives. First defense against uh, vir- viruses and uh, bacteria. Mm-hmm. U.S. cops are still shooting people left, right, and center. Yep. There's a guy shot. There's a video of a guy in Washington State. Pasco. Um, in Pasco, Washington State. And it's pretty clear from the video that he had his hands up and he wasn't uh, posing any kind of threat. And uh, it's amazing to see these cops, two or three of them, just like start shooting at him for no reason whatsoever. I was scared, you know. So I shot him. Uh, and the lies again. He looked at me the wrong way. So I shot him. I think it's just not that they're scared. It's just assumed now that if someone does something like jaywalk, you have to oh, yeah. you have to take him out. Well, but the narrative is always I was in fear fear of my life. Right. Yeah, it was throwing. And the, yeah, it's then there is this light which, which had a pain to injuries. You know, not only they killed him, the family's mourning, but in addition, they blamed the victim. He was throwing rocks. That is, he was threatening. Yeah, so you see the videos. He was not throwing well, rocks. He was he putting his. He may have thrown rocks previously, but maybe. when he was actually shot, he was like, he had turned on his hand off Hands like up. that, completely just standing on the sidewalk. He, he was but the cops, the narrative from the cops is always, I was in fear of my life. I was in fear for my life. Uh, because he's, that's what they usually say, but they come up with some articles. How do they explain shooting someone totally unarmed and obviously unarmed? How do they explain shooting them? So they come up with some bullshit story uh, that, you know, he looked at me the wrong way or he was putting an evil eye on me, you know. He was American, right? Hispanic yeah. American. Yeah, because the only official body of any kind to, you know, raise any questions about it was the Mexican government. Mm-hmm. Uh, United States, it, does that not make you feel like, when when it takes the Mexican government to yeah. 
explain the sort of basics in, of of moral civilizational yeah. you know decorum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, what, what can we expect? Things, things are so bad. It's just this week was Valentine's Day yesterday, and the, the theme du jour, the the romantic, the commercial, the the thing everyone's talking about is this movie Fifty Shades of Grey, which is basically a pornography movie. In fact, it's worse. It's a pornography movie with S&M and bondage. And it's the mass, it's in. It's just mass marketed as the romantic mm. thing to see it is. this week in the West. We are so screwed. Do you understand how screwed we are? I mean, it's a, that's a benchmark for where we're at uh, morally and yeah. conscience-wise in, in, our, in our global society. And it's been promoted, obviously, it's coming out of the U.S. You know, it seems to be the seat. Uh, of, of all of this, at least in terms of the quantity and the quality, or otherwise, of the kind of stuff that comes out, you know. And but this is—they didn't get enough people hooked on this. Uh, it was pitched largely, and I'm sure a lot of men read it. But it was a book that came out a couple of years ago uh, that was mass marketed and was, you know, millions of—I don't know how many—a lot of people read it, particularly women, because it was promoted to them. This is what you should read this book. You know, if it's the last thing you ever do, blah 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 blah. But then there's only so many people, particularly in the US, only so many people read. Mm. Uh, a lot of people don't like. Um, <laughs> it's, when it's being promoted by, you know, that guy. What's his name? Uh, Kane, Kane West. Um, he's uh, he's a rapper. Kanye, oh, West. Sorry, Kane, Kane, Kanye. Kanye. See, see how out of you got to get it with it, Joe. Yeah, out of touch I am. Um, <laughs> with Kane, it's spelled Kane. Oh no, Kanye. Okay, Kanye, Kanye. I got the N and the Y backwards. But apparently, like he's you know he's the best. Um, He's the best. Hippity hoppity, hippity hoppity, bop bopper. <laughs> this side of uh, uh, this side of um, Pig Floyd. So, um, what he said, one of the things that he said, and people obviously listen to him, is that he said sometimes people write novels and they just be so wordy and so self-absorbed. I am not a fan of books. I would never want a book's autograph. I am a proud non-reader of books. So the problem is. They didn't get enough people <laughs> to. They be so people do be so wordy, like sometimes. You know? True, I, I try I and cut agree, it back. I have to agree with them in that, you know. <laughs> and I would never want a book's autograph, whatever that means. But anyway, um, so they didn't get because not a lot of a lot of Americans don't read books. They weren't able to get this perverse, effed up movie. Or our story, story or message into people's minds. So then, then you go to movies and you get everybody basically if you're marketing, etc. You can get just everybody to see it, and it's probably even more crass. You know, at least with a book, there's some nuances and stuff. Maybe you yeah, can do it more. And not thinking. everyone has to see it. Everyone right. gets the gist of it. You see the right. image of of what's going on, right. and you get you know a headline here and a headline there, and boom, it's been printed. Yeah. It's seared all. You can't. You have to be in a hole right. the last two weeks to have missed it. Yeah. I and the you... message is clear from the authorities. They're saying S and M and being psychopathic in a relationship is yeah. perfectly awesome. In fact, it will make your life better for you. Something yeah. you should aspire to. Yeah. And that's that's a total reversal of values that I noticed as well. You know, there are waves of spams, and that gives a quite an interesting so, what waves of a spam spam, spam email. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, a few years ago, it was Viagra, or then it was about. Penis enlargement techniques, or you know, fake uh, Rolex watches. And in in France, over the last weeks, the big spam thing was a website called. The slogan is, "I love 
therefore I cheat. And actually today, I read it again, I was thinking, I love, therefore I cheat. So it, it, you perceive the paradox, the conundrum in this sentence, it's in your face and actually you cheat because you don't love. And here, the total reversal, yeah. yeah I cheat completely, because... We have to go back to ponderology and ponderization of society and just try yeah. that whole... It's all expelled out in ponderology, the political ponderology of the book. Um, just how that, uh, that process, infection, uh, seems to occur because... I mean, there's so many people, it's not just the powers that be doing this anymore, although they play a big part in it, obviously, but that infection has and it's spreading, you know, uh, because all new people are taking this up and promoting this and put, putting it out there. They've, they've adopted, the, they've internalized the, the psychopathic, psychopathological um, you know, worldview and made it their own, and they are now the carriers of it, you know, and it's, uh, it's pretty horrific. But on the bright side, there was a, a fireball, uh, very close to where we are just this week. Mm-hmm. As much as uh, all the craziness is still going on, the fireballs are still making their all the things like crazy weather and sinkholes and uh, sonic booms, which may or may not be supposed to be a fireball. But we, it was a fireball. We didn't see it. So, um, but, it was, but it was on Tuesday, very close to uh, where we are, shot across Ghana. I think it carried on down. Either it was the same one or another one was seen about Barcelona, which is just, you know quite a ways from here. But um, so yeah, I mean it was. You know, we're always reading about them, you know, elsewhere in the world, yeah. and then okay, we didn't see it, but uh, we got a little, a little uh, glimpse. There is hope too, yeah. <laughs> hope? What do you mean hope? As long as it hits Kane, one of them hits Kane, Kane West, Kane West on the head, uh, uh, him and uh, all the rest of them, you know, then we might have some hope. Uh, anyway, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, we've got to uh, our the top of the hour, more or less. So, we'll be back next week, probably, with another Behind the Headlines show, bringing you all of the juicy intel from Behind the Headlines, stuff that people aren't telling you. Tomorrow. I the same stuff, the normal stuff, you know, that's like kind of just straight up in your face, duh, stuff. That's what we'll bring next week. But what's happening tomorrow? Tomorrow on the Stop Radio Network, there's the Health and Wellness exactly. show. Make sure you tune in for that. Tune in for that as well. Um, it's at six six Eastern time. Yeah. Six okay. AM Eastern time. Eastern US time. Yeah. So yeah. So until then, uh, thanks to our listeners and to our chatters, and we love you all. You're super cool. Uh, so yeah, tune in next week, and we'll be back then. Have a good one. See you next week. Bye bye. Have a nice week. Bye. <clears throat>